1: Spirituality and social transformation. Today's show is all about the healing power of sound. And I'm going to be interviewing a delightful woman named Eileen McCusick. And uh, I'm really struck by Eileen's intrepid spirit, her sharp mind, and her compassionate heart. And she's been on quite a journey exploring the power of the conscious use of sound for healing she uses tuning forks that are tuned to special solfeggio frequencies and she's developed a map of the relationship between crystallized emotional energies and where those are located in the human energy field and she's developed some new ways of contacting that energy, and helping it to move and resolve and complete itself. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this exciting interview between myself and Eileen McCusick. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. And I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul... We do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing and spirituality and social transformation, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. We're going to be speaking with Eileen McCusick. and I came across Eileen and her work probably maybe about a year ago, maybe a little less than that, when I had the opportunity to read her book about Her journey and about how she uses sound for healing purposes and I've been interested in the use of sound for healing and to catalyze spiritual realization for a long time and uh, what really impressed me about Eileen when I was reading her book was her honesty and her commitment to the facts and to being very responsible about making distinctions about what she's actually observing and measuring and experiencing as opposed to opinions and conjecture and her intrepid spirit and uh, her willingness to follow her intuition and her truth wherever it leads her and her honesty as a healer. And, uh, and, and I just wanted to be a part of uh, her journey. And so it's really an honor and a privilege to invite you, Eileen, into the conversation today. So welcome.
0: Thank you, David.
1: So I'm going to read you, read the listeners, the short bio that you sent me here. So here we go. Eileen McCusick is a researcher, writer, educator, and practitioner who has been studying the effects of audible sound on the human body since 1996. She's the originator of biofield tuning, a unique therapeutic method utilizing tuning forks, and the author of Tuning the Human Biofield, Healing with Vibrational Sound Therapy, published by Healing Arts Press in 2014. Eileen has a master's degree in in integrative education, and she's currently at work on a Ph.D. in integral health with a focus on biofield science. Her extensive research into the field of therapeutic sound spans both the academic and alternative realms. Eileen teaches and practices biofield tuning in California and Vermont, and she can be reached through www.EileenMcCusick.com. That's www.E-I-L-E-E-N as in Nancy, M as in Mary, C-K-U-S-I-C-K.com. So, Eileen, welcome again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, w- the way I like to start these interviews, because they are in-depth interviews, and it's a chance to not just talk about things, but to really touch people and really impact them deeply, is I'd like to give you as much time as you'd like in the beginning to share with people about your personal and professional Healing journey and how you crossed paths with uh, with sound as a potential healer and uh, just feel free to tell us your story in a way that when we do later talk about the details about your work that there's a a powerful connected container to kind of hold hold it all in. So I'll let me just turn it over to you for a while.
0: Great, thanks, David. Well. I've been interested in the healing arts since I was about 18, and the reason why I became interested in healing was uh, for healing myself. I, like many American teenage girls, ended up with a distorted relationship with my body and with food. There's so much pressure in our culture to be skinny, and I think that that really just messes up a lot of people, and I certainly... Was one of them. It felt to me like I had fallen into a lobster pot. And I became bulimic at the age of 17 and was until I was about 20. When I was 18, I started reading self help books, natural healing, science and spirituality, things like, you know, Carlos Castaneda and Tony Robbins, <clears throat> Carolyn Meese. And through the information that I got out of that first round of reading, I was able to cure myself of bulimia. Uh, But the whole sort of process made me realize that I was just really interested in those topics. You know, the whole sort of science and spirituality thing was very compelling to me. And I went on to read a great many more books uh, through my 20s. And had the thought of maybe that I wanted to become a naturopath but really wasn't prepared to spend that much time in school so I decided that a a good entry point might be massage therapy and so when I was 24 I went to massage therapy school and while I was there I read Quantum Healing by Deepak Chopra that was introducing the concept of everything being vibration and shortly after that I read a book on the use of color, sound, and music in healing. And I thought, well, if everything is vibration, then uh, healing with vibration just makes sense. It's very logical. And I tend to be sort of logic-driven. I'm always looking for things that make sense and are logical and practical and grounded. And so I went out and I basically bought every book I could find about vibrational healing And at the time I had started doing a massage just as part-time, I owned a restaurant as well. And uh, so that was my full-time gig, but I did some massage on the side and I had, um, I had gotten to the end of this stack of books when I got a catalog in the mail that had a set of tuning forks for healing in the catalog. And I was like, Oh look, you know, sound healing. So I ordered them just on impulse. And I had some massage clients who I was comfortable enough with to ask them if they would be willing to be guinea pigs. And so I started off using these tuning forks. It was uh, the C major scale. And it came with this little tiny instruction book that said, you use the note of C over the root chakra, the note of D over the second chakra, and so on up through the crown, which was the note of B. And so that's what I started doing. And I remember the very first time I struck the tinning fork and held it over someone's body, I sort of moved it around. And I had anticipated that the tone that was produced would be sort of uniform and, you know, sort of an input into the body. But what I didn't anticipate was that the tone actually changed. As I moved it around the body, it it, uh, got louder or it got softer or in some places it became very sharp. In other places, it faded out altogether, which I thought was very curious. I, I didn't, you know, ha, I didn't anticipate that that would be the case. And so what I discovered was that in some places where it would sound loud, like let's just say, uh, you know, it sounded loud over someone's right hip. Um, I equated loudness with more energy. And I thought, well, if it's going to be loud anywhere, it should probably be loud over the chakra itself and i discovered that i could actually use the tuning fork like you might use a magnet to move iron filings i could actually sort of hook in to these loud spots and i could drag them along with the tuning fork and then drop them in the chakra and then it would sound loud over the chakra and it wouldn't sound loud where it had previously and so i developed this little method where i would go through chakra by chakra and i would find wherever it was loud and i would. Drag it, you know, into the energy center. I called it click, drag, and drop because it was really what it felt like. I, I still call it click, drag, and drop. And so I did this for years, um, part time. I sold my share in the restaurant and then I started a specialty food business and I did that. Um, but after about 10 years of doing this part time, um, I was, I started to realize how powerful the outcomes were, you know, as I got better at it, and I learned more, very extraordinary things were happening. And they really did right off the bat, actually, with my clients, like pain would go away, anxiety would diminish, Um, people reported feeling brighter, clearer, freer. Um, You know, but this was in Connecticut back in the 90s. And I tell people that I was using tuning forks for healing, I would get sort of, you know, skeptically dismissed, Um, Right away. And, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been skeptically dismissed. It doesn't feel very good, especially since the restaurant I had was very popular. And then the specialty food business I had was very popular. It was very uncomfortable for me to, you know, tell people uh, about this practice and just encounter that sort of, you know, it seems to me in most people, especially um, back then in the 90s and even the 2000s, a sort of knee jerk automatic sort of skeptical dismissal of it. And it was that dismissal that really led me to realize that if I was going to take this practice out into the world, uh, because it was effective and interesting, that it would probably be helpful if I had some degrees. And so I decided to go as an adult learner uh, to college. Um, Luckily, there's a school right here in the town that I live in, in Vermont, called Johnson State College. And Johnson actually has an undergraduate degree program in wellness and alternative medicine. So I was able to attend that. And then they had a master's in education program, which I also attended. And for my master's thesis, I put together um, an academic document, basically exploring, uh, you know, from from an academic sort of rigorous standpoint, the use of audible sound, which there really wasn't very much of, And also the biofield. And the term biofield was chosen by a panel of National Institute for Health scientists back in 94 to describe the field of energy and information that surrounds the human body. But what happened to me in, it was probably 2005 or 2006, was, you know, I had been working right over the body for years. And one day I discovered one of those loud spots that I like to move around um, about two and a half feet off of the side of someone's um, shoulder and was very surprised to discover it there. It was completely by accident that, that I encountered it. And when I moved it with the click, drag and drop method, uh, it felt very curious to be dragging a loud spot so far. Um, but the person who I was treating had an ailment that, they had been to numerous practitioners of all different kinds and nobody had been able to help them with and she called me the next day and told me that all of her discomfort and pain was gone. And so that made me very intrigued um, about, you know, this area around the body. And so from then on, I started exploring as far away as I could in my treatment room, which was about six feet. I'd activate the tuning fork and start to move in towards the body from that far away. And I started discovering, like, all kinds of things in the field. There were loud spots and walls and channels and places where things felt frozen. I mean, it, it was really, it was fascinating. And uh, and as I explored this region around the body, this pattern began to emerge, and it It was really emerging prior to that, but when I really started to get into this area around the body, it became more evident to me. And that is that the field, which, you know, we might call the human energy field or the aura. um, It's, you know, in most images, it's depicted as being about five to six feet extending away from the body. Um, It appeared to have an actual anatomy and... I kept finding, you know, memories, these loud spots seemed to relate to memories to traumatic experiences that people had had in certain times of their life related to certain relationships or emotions or states of mind. And two attributes of this field revealed themselves to me. So one was that it seemed to be compartmentalized that I kept finding all the stories that were sad off of the left side of the heart chakra, off the left shoulder. And I kept finding all the stories that were frustrated off the left hip and stories of uh, anger, you know, off the right solar plexus. So it seemed like there was a stratified um, frequency-based storage system within this field related very specifically to different emotions, different states of mind. I also observed that it appeared to be timelined, meaning that as information was experienced, you know, if you had, for example, we're in a car accident, um, you know, you would have that experience. It's almost like whatever we, we feel gets laid down like an EEG readout in these, uh, a sort of standing wave format in the field. And as, um, you know, we move along in time, Um, these experiences move away from us. So information that I would find close to the body related to things that were current or recent, information I found out at the outer edge of the field appeared to relate to gestation, birth, sort of earliest childhood, and then everything else fell in between, like rings in a tree. You know, so if somebody was 40 and they had a car accident when they were 20 and they hurt their back, I'd find a big distortion, you know, say in the area related to their low back Uh, halfway through their field, and I had, you know, and continue to have this sort of curious knack of getting into these distortions, because when the tuning fork combs through the field, the tone that it produces seems to interface with the frequency information that's stored in the field, so in that point of intersection, the tone changes to reflect what it's encountering, there's a story there, there's information, and I just seem to be able to understand uh, what that story or that information is. So that ability kind of led to the, you know, perceiving this pattern that seemed to be there. And I was skeptical about this pattern for a really, really long time for many reasons. You know, one being that I've done a lot of reading and a lot of research and I had never come across anything that referred to this specific model before. So I had a hard time believing that I was actually discovering something that nobody else had discovered. you know and I also know that um, our minds are very powerful and, and our minds kind of look for patterns you know so I was thinking that maybe I was making the whole thing up. Um, but you know i reached a point where I could very very accurately go through somebody's field, and tell them all about themselves, you know, based on reading this pattern. And my accuracy was extremely high. Um, Then in 2010, I started teaching the method to students um, who, you know, could refer to this biofield anatomy map that I had created in this timeline concept and actually be able to um, do the same thing with their clients. So I started to think that, you know, maybe there's a possibility that this structure, this, you know, very specific anatomical structure really does exist. And if you look at the rest of the body, you know, the brain is compartmentalized and different parts of the brain are responsible for different kinds of functioning and the digestive tract is, you know, compartmentalized and different things do different things. So I guess it seemed to make sense that the field could be compartmentalized and certainly different emotions, um, expressed in different frequency patterns, uh, and these seem to be sort of, you know, at levels or striations, so, um, so I ended up writing my thesis on, uh, you know, trying to, I don't know, just discover more information, you know, of what was science saying about the structure of the field, and, uh, I was particularly, interested in, and still am, because this question has never been answered, that when I comb the tuning fork through the field, and I find these distortions in it that relate to historical traumas, there is a particular sense of resistance that I encounter in those places. And when I teach this to my students, they're always completely amazed when they come up against these places of resistance, because it feels like you're actually hitting something. Okay, so Western science doesn't acknowledge the existence of subtle energy. And so, you know, because from way back from the scientific revolution, you know, things like subtle energy w- were considered in the realm of spirit right if we're talking about soul or spirit or anything like that that's the domain of religion not of science and so science has been very unwilling to cross that line in the sand to investigate the nature of subtle energy and so you know i was trying to find scientists and physicists that i could talk to about this phenomenon you know i'm encountering this resistance in the field and i want to know what it is you know, it seems to respond to sound almost magnetically, like sound appears to have a magnetic effect on it, in in that I'm able to, with a vibrating teen quirk, appear I can move this mass. Uh, it appears to me to be related to uh, what we might call soul loss. In the shamanic tradition, there's a concept that when we encounter a traumatic situation, we don't have the reason sources to integrate or digest the experience that a bit of us breaks off and like a soul fragment and stays in that place. We might move away from it in time and space, but we've sort of left it behind. And in shamanism, the shaman will uh, use active imagination or journeying and travel back in time and find the soul fragment and pick it up. And then they bring it and they drop it or blow it into the body and that's what i felt like when i first started discovering these bits of these loud spots and resistance and energy in the field and discovering they were related to trauma and i realized that i was you know assisting the body in bringing back these parts of self and integrating them reintegrating them into here and now you know with incredible outcomes where people would suddenly have energy to finish projects or you know anxiety would go away or pain would disappear um People always said they feel lighter, you know, which made me think, is this light of some kind? Could it be? And then I discovered biophotons, which is sort of an area of interest to me right now as a possible explanation for what it is that I'm actually encountering and moving. So to date, I've really yet to find um, a scientist who can put their head together with me on this and take a really good look at it. And really contemplate, you know, what, from a Western perspective, we could call this stuff, you know, is it, is it light? Is it photons? Is it free electrons? You know, is it magnetic monopoles? There's definitely a substance here. And, and when it's moved and it's reintegrated into the body, it produces a real outcome. So because after writing my master's thesis, I didn't have those questions answered, um, I decided to go on to a PhD, which I'm actually, uh, working on right now and, you know, hoping that I can understand, uh, better, you know, in a way that satisfies the, the Western mind, uh, an understanding of, of what subtle energy really is and what, um, this process, you know, is it mind? Is it consciousness? Um, we don't really know. You know, it's a very interesting, it's sort of described right now, this sort of investigation into subtle energy, whether it exists, whether it doesn't exist, is it consciousness, is it not? You know, this is really edgy territory, um, where really interesting things are happening. So I'm I'm pretty excited to be sort of in the middle of it, pursuing this line of inquiry. Um, You know, and just discovering. So I I consider myself very much a student. I'm really driven by curiosity and questions and a need and desire to better understand um, the phenomenon that I'm encountering while I'm doing this work. So that's been my journey.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo let's see if we can turn that off somehow. That's good. And uh, I'd like to take you back to uh, something you went over pretty quickly. And that was that period where you had bulimia and over a period of time, you healed yourself from bulimia. Could you talk a little more about that process and your journey at that time?
0: Sure. Well, I discovered a few things that helped me to heal that. Uh, One of them was I realized that I had been programmed with that behavior because our culture holds up two signs to young women, you know, to people in general, but especially to women. And that is um, consume shop, you know, buy things, uh, just consume in general. Um, And then the other sign is be skinny. And so You know, people who have a lot of self-control, uh, can definitely not consume, uh, people who don't, you know, have self-control might consume a lot. Uh, I'm a Libra (laughs) and, and I'm just by nature, very interested in, uh, reconciling opposites. You know, it's why this whole sort of science and spirituality thing is so intriguing to me, um. Well, in bulimia, you know, I had figured out how to do both. I could could consume, but then I could also be skinny. And I remember being so frustrated and, and, you know, like when I wanted to stop, because it started very innocently um, and then quickly became compulsive. And when I wanted to stop, I couldn't. And asking myself, you know, what's wrong with me? Like thinking that I was somehow, um, you know, sick or wrong. It was my fault. And then it dawned on me that that I had been programmed through advertising, through media, you know, through corporations, basically, um, to to have this problem. So that was a huge relief to kind of realize it wasn't really my fault. Um, It was just I was just responding to my environment, what my environment was telling me. The other thing that kind of dawned on me was it was my hand. And my mouth. And if I wasn't in control of myself, who was? Right? I mean, it's an interesting thing around compulsiveness when you when you say, I can't. I don't have any control over myself. Where has that control gone? Where has that power gone? <clears throat> right? And and so I realized that I had to step in, you know, I had to find the part of me that was powerful and sort of step in and exercise control. Uh, to take responsibility, I had to take responsibility for my actions. Um, And, and I was able to, uh, which, you know, and that was after reading, like, you know, Tony Robbins, uh, Awaken the Giant Within, and Wayne Dyer, and, you know, TNT, The Power Within You. I mean, I definitely inhaled quite a lot of self-help books uh, in those three years. And that was enough information, you know, to get me to be empowered enough to start making better choices.
1: Did you have a, uh, a a person on the physical plane that was that acted like a mentor or a guide for you, or was it pretty much these these books and tapes?
0: Yeah, it was books. I, I always wanted a teacher, <laughs> but uh, but never really found one when I was younger. So yeah, it was just just a lot of reading.
1: Now, was there a point where you took it further beyond uh, what we would normally consider personal and self-development, did you ever have a desire, and did you act on it to explore spiritual depth in a more structured way, or did you just kind of live your life and trust that that would unfold, or or how did how did how did your spiritual journey deepen?
0: I grew up in a non-religious household. Uh, So I wasn't really exposed to religion in the home. Um, I did, you know, go to church with friends a few times and discovered that Christianity was highly illogical, (laughs) Um, which made me, you know, go on that whole, again, that sort of exploration into uh, different faiths. You know, I read, I think I read Siddhartha when I was 17, um, became really interested in Buddhism read a lot about Buddhism, Um, you know, I did A Course in Miracles when I was 23, and that was very powerful. It was a little difficult for me because A Course in Miracles is written all in um, Christian languaging, and I had to translate it in my mind in order to read it, but that book actually had a very profound effect on me. It, It definitely gave me mental discipline and taught me how to quiet my mind. And that's something that stayed with me ever since then. And, you know, something that I see as a practitioner, uh, very few people seem to have the ability to quiet their thinking mind. Um, they don't, I think most people don't recognize the high degree of discipline that's required uh, to tame the thinking mind. And I see a lot of suffering happen as a consequence because most people's thinking minds are abusive. Them. Um, so, you know, that I would say that that was very influential on me, of course, in Miracles. And, you know, and then I just, but I was a seeker. I, I remained a seeker because I always felt like there was something missing. There was something missing. And I kept reading and I kept reading and I kept reading. And I finally found what I was looking for. And I'm so happy to not be a seeker anymore um, because. What I found, I say this, you know, when I teach classes that the best self-help book I ever found, the self-help book to end all self-help books, literally for me, wasn't even a self-help book. It's a book called The Electric Sky by Donald Scott, and it talks about a completely different cosmology from our Big Bang cosmology that's called Electric Universe Theory. And basically, electric universe theory says that electricity, not gravity, is the dominant force in space. And that rather than space being like this empty vacuum that sound doesn't travel through and, you know, we're all alone in this inconsequential place, off in the fringes of the Milky Way by ourselves, no one can hear you, it's just a rock spinning and nothingness and it's all isolated and separate and meaningless. Um... Electric universe theory says it's all like this warm soup of plasma and that everything is connected and it's all everything is electric and the same electricity that powers the stars like powers myself that I'm electric too and that the earth is electric like everything is electromagnetic and connected. And when I learned about electric universe theory, and I really dove into it, I mean, I really read everything I could find on it. I watched videos. I really immersed myself in electric universe theory to develop a really solid grasp of what they were saying. And it w- it became like a love affair because I realized that what I had been depressed about, what I had been weighed down by without even realizing it was this sort of cosmological story of you know, entropy, like, you know, the universe started as nothing and then it blew up and it's just going to dissipate and turn into nothing. And, um, you know, it's, it's all as my father used to say, it's all going down. <laughs> um, it, it ignores the opposite of entropy, you know, which is, uh, syntropy is the word I use, although science uses the word negative entropy. Um, you know, the universe is, appears to be a perpetual motion machine. Like, even though some stars die over here, other ones are born there. And and all of these, everything is connected. So our cosmology is one of separation. It's one of coldness. It's one of isolation. And it's like, and it's mysterious and dark, with like dark energy and dark matter. And nobody knows what they are, but they're dark. <laughs> and Black holes that suck in light, that devour light, you know, and In electric universe theory, there's none of that. It's like this cosmology of light and connection instead of darkness and separation. And that was what I was looking for. You know, that completely changed my life and created a warm, fuzzy, connected relationship with the universe in me um, that's never gone away. So that, that to me, you know, to me, spirituality is just an awareness that everything is connected. You know, and it's not just um, a theory, it's a feeling in your body. It's a knowing that everything is connected, that I'm not suffering from this Cartesian duality and anxiety as a consequence, but rather I'm relaxed and content because I'm one with all that is.
1: That's beautiful. That. Um, yeah. it's beautiful. I'll check out that book. It reminds me deeply of the work of two people, I don't know if you know their work. One is still alive in this world and the other one is not. Are you familiar with Nassim Haramine? Oh, sure. So it reminds me of his cosmology. And also, are you familiar with the work of Walter Russell?
0: Sure. I've got I was just looking, in fact, I've got the secret of light over there on my bookcase. Yeah.
1: So (laughs) so it sounds to me, and I'm I'm saying this to you to get some feedback. It sounds like the implications of the worldview from electric sky. Are very much in alignment with Nasim's work and Walter Russell's work. Yes. Okay. So there's that um, there's that wholeness that you know deeply that informs your life and your work, and that's fantastic. You know, I know uh, for myself, um, I put my toe in the water a few times about trying to train. Uh, people that are interested in becoming really excellent healers and uh, almost all of those attempts have been aborted and they've been aborted because um, because the depth of the knowingness of what you're talking about um, was required to do the healing work that I do and people either weren't ready or able to go there and so Mm -hmm. I'm interested later on when we talk more about your work and about your teaching work, about your experience of how much that where you're coming from is an integral part of the equation of the power of your work and how effective or non-effective you've been at catalyzing that space for other people that want to do the work. Um, that's something that's very interesting to me. Um, So one of the things I heard is that your initial foray into the tuning forks was the common everyday scale that we're aware of. And, um, you know, there are a lot of healers that work with sound now that prefer to work with a harmonic called the solfeggio frequencies that they sense has more of an attunement with biological systems. What's your take on that?
0: So when I, I used the harmonic spectrum set for um, maybe 12 or 13 years, and then I started feeling like I needed a new set. And so I went online and I started looking at tune fork sets, and I was <laughs> immediately like overwhelmed because there's many different sets out there. and you know, without listening to them, without playing them, how is I to know what one to choose? And so when I don't know what to do, I ask the universe. And I said, universe, because to me, I'm a universalist. Like, I believe that the universe is an organism and that I'm part of it. And so we might call it God, but I prefer the word universe just because it's not tinged with, you know, other religions. So so I said, universe, I feel like I need a new set of forks, but I don't know what to get. Can you help me to figure it out? So about a week later, I got an email from an acquaintance who said to me, I just met a woman who's using solfeggio tuning forks. Have you ever heard of them? And I said, no, no, I haven't heard of the solfeggio tuning forks, but, you know, thanks for letting me know. And then about a week after that, I had a girlfriend uh, send me an email, and she said, I was just watching this thing on YouTube about these solfeggio frequencies. Have you ever heard of them? And I said, well, yes. As a matter of fact, I just heard about them last week. And then a week after that, and this is an absolutely true story. I met a girlfriend for lunch, and we sat down at the table, and she pulled a book out of her bag, and she set it on the table, and she said, this book practically jumped off the shelf as I was leaving the house. I think you're supposed to read it. And the book was called The Healing Codes for the Biological Apocalypse by Leonard Horowitz. And it was the story of how this doctor named Joseph Paleo had sort of rediscovered these solfeggio frequencies (laughs) and that these frequencies are all based in the number three. And this was the third time in three weeks when I had been exposed to the solfeggios, which were all about the number three. And I was like, okay, when I finished the book, I was like, okay, universe, I got it. I need the solfeggio set. So that's how I ended up with it. And when I got the set, I was stunned at how much more beautiful the tones were from The C scale, the C scale sounded dull and muddy and kind of dumb uh, next to these very crystalline, brilliant, beautiful tones. And so I abandoned the harmonic spectrum set and started using the Geo set. And that's what I still use, although I went through this rather curious, and it's still a problem, not like it used to be, but um, I'm actually the first person in the history of therapeutic tuning forks to wear them out. I have a very busy practice. And, you know, the practice is one of finding distortion in the field and staying with that distortion until it harmonizes. And so the combination of just heavy use and then this sort of heavy use in distortion um, actually makes uh, my tuning forks lose their structural integrity. And they develop a buzz, uh, I think probably from micro cracks in the metal. Um, But once they wear out, then they're not usable anymore. (laughs) So I need to replace them. And so what ended up happening was, you know, at any given time I might be down a fork or two because I, I was never very good at making sure I had backup. I think I was kind of in denial. But what all that breaking forks made me realize was that I didn't need the whole set. And so I currently use just two forks from that set. So, you know, there was a time when I actually, um, I had a custom set made with uh, sacred geometry numbers because that was another sort of area of interest in mine, and I did quite a lot of investigation into sacred geometry. And so I picked all these sort of special sacred geometry numbers and had a set made and and at one time I was using that set plus the harmonic spectrum set plus the solfeggio set, you know, all in one session, I would be using up to thirty different forks. <laughs> so <laughs> so, you know, the process now, I, I use just four. I use uh, two unweighted forks that are, you know, we sort of use those in the field and around the body. And then I use two weighted forks that are custom frequencies that I had made. And we use those by placing the handles of the vibrating fork on the body. So I'm down to just four. And, you know, it fits in my purse. <laughs> it's sort of like I have tuning forks, will travel, uh, which is what I've been doing. I've actually been going back and forth from Vermont to California you know, traveling lightly with just a few forks.
1: Okay. So, um, you know, my sense of your work is that you, you have this gift of tuning into where there is this crystallization in the field and it's usually correlated with some kind of trauma and then you lovingly hang out there and usually the energy starts to move and then, you drop it into the appropriate chakra. And what I'm wondering is, um, in terms of the experience of integration for the client, um, I would imagine that that varies quite a bit and is quite unique because everybody comes in with their own soul. Everybody comes in with their own readiness, their own willingness, their own background of understanding. They have different diets. They have different lifestyle habits. Um, their ego structure is different. And uh, what's been your experience of the integration process that's catalyzed by by your work? And kind of a corollary to that is, do you find that there's much of a either physical and or a metaphysical detoxification process that occurs for people? And if so, how do you manage that?
0: Yeah, there's definitely can be detox. And, you know, everybody's different. Some people have can have very strong detox reactions. You know, on the extreme end, I've had people have flu-like symptoms for weeks. Uh, I myself, when I first started getting tuned from my students, developed a cough that I had for a whole month and I produced just huge amounts of mucus and I lost seven pounds in a month and it was all all mucus because I had a lot of damp stagnation in my field and in my body. And so when you, you know, that's all related to stuck energy in the field. Once you get that energy in the field moving, all of a sudden it starts moving in the body. Right. And so Uh, Better out than in, but it can come out in interesting ways. I've had people have rashes, uh, diarrhea. Um, What's probably the most common is like mild flu like symptoms or exhaustion for just a couple days. Um, But you know, in some cases, it can be much more dramatic than that, although it's rare that you know that it can be that strong. Some people just feel great. You know, they feel lighter, clearer, better, brighter, you know, don't have any kind of detox. But I think it's also related to, like, how hydrated you are, um, how clean your diet is. Like, the cleaner somebody's diet is, the less they tend to detox. I actually do say that this work is contraindicated for people who are very ill. I discourage my students from working on people who have cancer or any kind of serious diagnosed illness. Because in my experience of working on people who are very ill is that they definitely have detox and it's like they don't have enough inner resources to kind of move through with it. You know, it it's just kind of too much for their system. Even though it's such a simple thing, you know, we're just waving tuning forks around people. But it's the way of waving them very precisely, you know, for the right amount of time in the in the right places that can really create a big change in the system, and you know, if there's been a lot of stagnation or stuckness, or you know, I think any kind of disease arises in the body due to lack of flow, whether it's lymph, blood, electricity, information, right? Something is blocked, and it feels to me like I'm working really like deep in like the collagen um, microfiber intercellular network of um, connective tissue, and that's where we seem to hold these emotional blocks, um, and and things just start to stagnate and pile up in these places. And so every area of stagnation in the physiology seems to have a corresponding area of stuckness in the field. And so you know, introducing flow allows the body to fix itself, but it can also discharge whatever's there. So, uh, you know, people, I, I tell every client after a first session that they may experience detox or, you know, a healing crisis. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it can be emotional. Sometimes, you know, we might be working on a particular pattern of, um, you know, I yell at my spouse and I'm completely reactive and I can't control myself. You know, I think one of the hardest things to change in us by ourselves are patterns of reactivity. So, you know, we might work on something like that and um, they'll feel great for a couple of days and then all of a sudden they'll just have like a huge blowout where it'll just come up and be really ugly, you know, for a little bit and then it'll dissipate and then, then they'll be better, you know. So you can have these sort of emotional um outpourings that happen as well or sadness. You know, I've worked on people and taken down walls in their heart where they've put up to protect themselves from a painful memory and, you know, taken that down and integrated the energy back in. And then they, you know, they'll cry for hours or for days, but then they come out the other side of it and they just feel so much better.
1: So, what have you, yeah, thank you. What have you noticed about working with people who are either on psychiatric medication? or immunosuppressive medication, do you notice that their fields are very distinct?
0: Yeah, for the most part, David, I don't work on many people who are on meds. You know, I'm, um, I've never had a sign. <laughs> Any place I've ever worked for 19 years, I've never had a shingle. Um, I've never advertised. People have found, I've been invisible for all intents and purposes. And people have found me through word of mouth. And the kinds of people who sniff out the lady waving tuning forks around and think that she's going to help them uh, generally are not on pharmaceutical products. Now, that's just been my experience. I've treated, you know, over almost 20 years, I've treated very, very few people on any kind of pharmaceutical product. Um, but the few that I have treated, I have found that it, it diminishes the effectiveness of this work because we're you know we're working at the level of mind we're working in this very subtle area that is um, it gives rise to what happens on a chemical level but if there's something in the body that's controlling the chemistry it's really hard for this more subtle stuff to work
1: that's been my experience as well i just think that in terms of the maturation of your work from the point of view of it being an innovation It has the potential to stand in this world as it currently exists and to interface with the world as it currently exists. Um, Some conversation around this topic is probably pretty important at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found like anti-anxiety, even painkillers, you know, get in the way. And when I've had people come in who've been on heavy painkillers, it just it doesn't it just dilutes the efficacy of, of what I'm doing.
1: Right. So, so I understand. So with your busy schedule right now, this bicoastal thing you're doing, um, what are you doing to take care of yourself and keep your own vibration clear and high? And are you just going to continue with this bicoastal thing? Or are you looking at making California your home? Or where are you right now?
0: That's a good question. Well, as far as self care goes, you know, I have a very busy schedule between, um, you know, seeing 20 to 25 clients every week, plus I teach. Um, I also travel, obviously, you know, like you said, I go to California. I have two kids who still need me and a husband who needs me. So my and I'm in a PhD program as well. So I've always got many things to do. I've learned that I can't maintain a schedule like this unless I engage in really meticulous self-care. So I receive two massages every month. Every two weeks I get a massage. I trade with uh, my students. I have a couple apprentices who work with me pretty closely, and I get them to work on me. Um, I've trained students how to do distance work, and so I usually receive a distance session or two a month from students as well. In fact, I just did an experiment with one of my students where we spent 15 minutes a day, um, every day. Sorry about that. Um, We're uh, doing distance work on each other. And that was amazing. You know, just that 15 minutes a day. We both had really interesting outcomes from that. You know, I noticed that the more of this work I receive, um, I'm clearer, brighter, sharper, more focused, more efficient, more lighthearted, which I think is really important. You know, I'm able to laugh, to keep my patience even with my teenage son um, and my husband. You know, to just be um, more playful. You know, even with a million things to do. You know, um, it's been it's been an incredible gift to receive all of this tuning. I've probably had I don't know 50 sessions at this point. And it's definitely turned me into a highly efficient, highly productive um, person. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, but that said, you know, the whole um, seeing, treating people one-on-one, uh, you know, it, gets, it does get a little hard. And I actually made a discovery recently that I could, uh, well, that one, I could do distance work. I figured that out a few years ago. Um, but more recently discovered that I can do group distance work and that I can work on many people all at once. And that has been a pretty profound revelation that sort of opened up a whole new world of possibilities. And I'm actually I did two experiments, you know, to see if it was possible. The first one I had about 140 people sign up for. And that, you know, such a fascinating experiment to, to do that. And then to uh, hear people's outcomes, you know, which were really powerful and quite a number of people had detox actually uh, from it, but, you know, reported back all kinds of things, pain, anxiety, um, you know, just feeling different in in many beneficial ways.
1: Did you do this over the phone or Skype or how did you do this?
0: So the first one I did, I did um, just having people tune in through the ethers. So, you know, that's how um, I do the distance work. I have the person imagine that they're on my table and I pretend they're on my table and I approach the table as if they were really there. And all of those same frequency patterns in the biofield anatomy show up as if they were really there. And I'm able to do a very detailed analysis on people's fields. And then I call them when I'm done. So it's not just, you know, because the work is simultaneously diagnostic and therapeutic. So the moment I find these distortions the coherent input immediately supports the body in resolving them. Uh, So, and then I get on the phone with people and I tell them, you know, what I discovered and what I found and find out what they felt. And people are usually just completely astonished at how accurately I can read their field, you know, from the other side of the world, (laughs) wherever I might be. Um, So when uh, I did the second one, um, we actually had people call in and I did it on speakerphone. And there were 115 people on that call. And that was really neat because I had the experience when I was doing that work, you know, sort of the collective of 100 you know 15 people. And actually there were more because there were quite a lot of people that signed up that didn't opt for the call and that just sort of tuned into the ethers, you know, and, and stayed quiet where they were. But I hit this one place when I was working in – uh, the right knee of the group that felt to me, you know, a big energy block, big wall. And I said, this is like this insurmountable obstacle that none of you can get over on your own. I said, so how about if we all help each other up and over this? And David, the energy shifted immediately in this incredibly <laughs> fascinating way. And, uh, and I, so I said to everybody, I am like, oh, good job. <laughs> you guys helped each other. And then there were two other occasions in that hour long session where it was a similar thing. And I asked people to help each other and things shifted immediately. And when I finished up, um, with that group, because I had collected people's emails in order to give them the call in number, I sent out a survey to them and got back a huge response. And you usually send out surveys, you know, after something, you don't care. I think it was over 50% sent information back. And I said, you know, what did you feel during after, and how did you feel when I asked you to help each other? And the stories that I got back, About people's experiences in helping each other and how they felt connected and how they felt the energy move right away. That was just so profound to me. You know, this idea that we can connect in the ether and help each other is just (laughs) amazing. And, you know, the thing is, is that humanity is such a mess at this point, and we've all inherited this sort of what I call energetic chaos. You know, just generations, certainly of the last century of World War One and World War Two and Vietnam, and especially World War Two is just massive trauma, you know, that was never really processed by that generation. They just started drinking and smoking, you know, so all of that unhealed stuff has been passed on to the baby boomers. You know, the baby boomers have driven the self-help movement. And in fact, it was actually the baby boomers. It was this pattern that I see in people who are in their 60s who were you know their parents had post traumatic stress disorder from World War II. They didn't deal with it. They um you know they just suppressed everything basically under lots of alcohol and tobacco, and and uh, what was it Valium that they gave the women. So these you know baby boomers were born. They were give they were bottle fed instead of breast fed. Uh, they didn't attach well to their mothers. That you know a lot of them were heavily sedated at birth. Um, then had, you know, we fed on a schedule. Uh, and anyway, it created this whole sort of constellation of issues that I see in that age group over and over again. And that was what inspired me to do the group session because I was getting bored seeing the same pattern over and over again. I'm like, oh, there's so many of you with the same pattern. I'm like, this is boring. Like I'm a scientist. They want to be discovering things. And, and so that was what gave me the idea to try working on them all at once. So in the first one that I did, I was completely blown away by the fact that the temperature went up in the room. Like when, when I had 140 etheric bodies on my treatment table, as I approached the table, it felt like a radiator. Like there was all this heat coming off of it. And then when I was working, every time I brought in energy that was, you know, that I had combed up in the field and brought it into the chakra, there was this burst of heat into the room. Like when you put, water on rocks in a sauna, you know, you get that sort of rush of heat. And so my first thought was, this is a data point, like this is something that we can actually measure. So I'm doing one more free experiment. And that one is going to be conducted in at the school where I'm getting my PhD, which is the California Institute for Human Science in Encinitas. And they have a copper room that is uh, all, all walls are copper. So it's electromagnetically shielded. It's light proof, it's soundproof, and it has a biophoton counter in it. And I did a course there last summer, uh, introduction to biophoton research. So I'm familiar with the setup and I know how to use it. And I will be on June 18th of uh, this year, be conducting a group distance healing session in that room. And I'll be measuring... Uh, temperature change, and I'll be measuring photon count and anything else we can think of to measure to, you know, apply some science to this and see if we can actually get some objective data that, you know, this crazy lady is doing works around imaginary bodies, that uh, something's really happening.
1: So how do you, um, I don't know if you can answer this question, but it's on my mind. How do you do these sessions in such a way that you're honoring the uniqueness of the particular group life and consciousness. And at the same time, you're being relevant enough to each individual.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm not even really sure. Although what comes to mind when you ask that is an experience that I had in the first session, which was that when I first started, you know, the very first moment of approaching these 140 bodies and i feeling like, wow, there really are like 140 different energies here, and I could I could feel all of them, and you know, and on some level, there's just an awareness of all of these different sort of photonic patterns uh, of individuals. When I got up into the heart chakra, the left side of the heart chakra holds stories of sadness, grief, and loss, and there was so much. I mean, think about 140 hearts. And all of the losses and sadness and grief that's there, it was so profound and and so intense. And and as I brought that energy in and and introduced it into the body, this really wild thing happened. Like the whole whole barometric pressure in the room changed. It went from being sort of heavy to being really light and in this sort of whoosh sort of way that was so fascinating. I looked at the clock and I had an assistant in the room with me. And I said to her, note that time, because what just happened here was really significant. And I want to know if other people, you know, experienced it. So then I I went around and, and was finishing up in the last 10 minutes or so. And I had this sense that whereas before the heart, I'd been working on 140 bodies. Now I was working on just one. It was as if some kind of synchronization had happened. And instead of me feeling like, oh, I'm just kind of pushing everybody along here, you know, there was this feeling like we were suddenly all dancing in a line together and we were all in synchrony. And it was wonderful. It was this incredible feeling of of unity and, um, and synchronization. <laughs> and so the way that we got feedback from that first event uh, was – I created it as a Facebook event, which has a wall that people could write in on. And so people started sending in their experiences. And so many people mentioned the shift they felt at, you know, 45 minutes in. When it happened, they felt a whoosh. They felt heat. They felt a synchronization. I mean, people have really experienced it. So I think to answer your question, yes, we are all individuals but we're also all one. I mean, everything is one, right? There's really no separating anything. And that, you know, Bob Marley, like what about the one heart? What about the one mind? Like there is, there, there's both, there, there is a level where we're all one and most of us aren't there, but this process seems to like sync us up and join us in that way. And I feel like I've only just scratched the surface of what's possible here.
1: I think you're onto something there with the heart being the integrating factor. Uh, was this before or after you invited people to be sending healing energy to each other?
0: That was before, because in that first session, I didn't, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't connected through the phone, so I couldn't say anything. Although I think that I did you know, in the initial instructions, ask people to intend uh, healing for themselves, healing for the group, and also healing for the world at large.
1: And I just want to say that I think that's an important condition that allows people to open up their hearts to be available to what you're dealing with there. I think the the concept of that there's a flow there. They're not The person isn't just receiving, but they're also giving, and they're also tapping into something bigger than their current version of their own identity. I think those are necessary conditions to really optimize that kind of um, activation of group life and consciousness that you experienced. And so I think you intuitively did that, but I just want to point that out uh, just to have you consider it? Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's great. So I was going to ask you a question, but you may have already answered it in what you've just been talking about now. I was going to ask you kind of what's on the cutting edge for you these days and what are you most excited about these days? But I have a sense that you answered it uh, to a large extent, this idea of not being bound by spatial limitations and and, and tapping into the Potential synergy and compression of of the group.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is just really intriguing to me. And you know, David, I want to write another book, and I want to maybe take more than one class a semester in my PhD, so I can be done in maybe less than ten years, um, and just kind of free myself up because really, I've been really sort of chained to my treatment table, sort of day in all day, and actually. Starting July 1st, I am stopping doing one-on-one sessions, you know, maybe just for now. But my since my book came out, I've just gotten so busy, and my calendar has just filled up so much. And uh, I just can't – I can't treat everybody, you know, who wants to be treated. And so I do have some apprentices, and I do – I am referring people to them. They're great. You know, they work on me. Um but I, starting in July, I'm going to be offering these group sessions and they will be available through my website. People will be able to go and to sign up for them. There'll be um, three a month uh, on a particular th- theme. So um, one session a week for three weeks and then a week off, uh, you know, maybe around depression, one around depression, sadness, loss, uh, one around, you know, anxiety, worry, stress, uh, you know fibromyalgia. there's all different kinds of clusters of things out there that people suffer from, Um, and in order to make it really accessible, it's only going to be forty dollars for each group of three. So that way, I can treat a lot of people, keep it really affordable, and uh, you know, and be and be uh, exploring new territory, which is really you know, I like adventure and experiments, and um, I'm always excited to do things I've never done before. So I'm really looking forward to this group work. I think that it's going to be, um, you know, interesting. And uh, I'm just looking forward. And I'm really looking forward to my experiment at CIHS in the, in the copper room. You know, I can't wait to learn what the outcome of that is going to be. And, well, you know, whatever kind of offshoots might come from that. When I was there last summer in the biophoton class, I thought I was going to explode with joy working with the biophoton counter. It made me so happy to be quantifying this work. And, you know, that I, I feel like biofield therapies require a scientific understanding that isn't there yet. And I want to work towards moving the paradigm forward, you know, tw- so that we can all go, oh yeah, I have a biofield. I'm <laughs> like, no big deal. Subtle energy exists, you know.
1: Are you because, familiar with um, the GDV camera?
0: Oh yeah, there's a there's a lab at my school that has like every single thing like that, and I've I've done a little playing around with the GDV camera and a number of other things like that besides. So yeah, I mean I really want to play with more technology, um and and c- what I want to do is like get a whole bunch of those different things because what's neat about the biofield tuning is is that it produces very dramatic and immediate state changes in people. And so it's a really useful method to use to with, with things like the GDV, because then you can really see the sort of before and after changes that happen. And one of the things that I want to do is play with a whole bunch of things like that and then sort of compare you know, their read on what, what the shift was that happened. So technological uh, exploration is sort of what's exciting to me and sort of coming up on my plate.
1: Well, you know, you're such an intrepid spirit. Uh, I think we have that in common. We both are happiest when we're exploring our our cutting edge. And I think uh, we're both experimenting with how to scale our work in groups to the point where it's even better. And uh, it's very exciting. And I really admire what you're doing. I also really admire your um Your integration of left and right brain, and that is very well developed on both sides. And um, very excited about uh, what's going to be coming in your life and in our lives because of you over the next several years. Um, As we move toward wrapping up this interview, we've got like about seven minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to say anything that you would want to say in these last few minutes either me and or to the listeners that, uh, that's moving through you right now?
0: Well, you know, whenever I get asked this question, I, I tend to always say the same thing because I, I think it's really important for people to hear. And that is when I first started doing this work, when I first started playing with the tuning forks, and I, you know, and I developed this little simple method of, of balancing the chakras close to the body. What I discovered was that everybody seemed to have a perfect harmony inherent in them that once we cleared away the noise, the static, the heavy stuff that, that underneath was this harmony that would emerge. And I remember being so baffled by it and I I didn't really quite understand why, you know, and, and in that harmony was this sort of inherent greatness that, that I saw and I'd come home from you know, my office, and I'd say to my husband, "Boy, that those people I worked on today were—they were, they were just great," you know. <laughs> I kept saying it, and he's like, "What? Is everybody great?" And I was like, yeah, "I think everybody's great. <laughs> we don't know it, you know, because how many of us like self-refer that way, right?" And I didn't understand why it was so hard for me to to swallow that, you know. And I realized after a bunch of contemplation that you know, even though I was raised in a non-religious home, I was raised in a Christian culture. And the Christian story is one of guilt and sin. You know, it's like we've fallen from grace. We're guilty sinners who were cast out of the garden, you know, and it was her fault. So women are especially guilty. And, uh, you know, now we're all suffering and, and, you know, we're less than perfect. And And so to discover that this simply wasn't true just created a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. And it made me realize that I was subconsciously believing in this concept of sin and guilt and not worthiness without even realizing that I was. And so I think that it's really hard. I I need
1: to interrupt you. There's been like about six or seven things like I'm hearing really strange background noises kind of like and I don't know if your microphone is hitting something
0: no it's my cat who is actually rubbing up against my computer and I'm trying to push her away
1: can you can you put her somewhere else for a couple of minutes
0: okay so um so just coming back to that thought about uh how we're all, we're not guilty sinners. We're actually perfect harmonic beings who are full of grace. And most people walk around with a very punishing inner critic who believes the not worthy story and who reinforces it over and over again. And I think that stops so many people from recognizing and reaching their potential. Or even just being able to experience joy, <laughs> um, because most people are are punishing themselves subconsciously or consciously because of this belief in in sin, and I, it's just not true. But, you know, we're, we we have this inherent harmonic greatness that is so beautiful, um, and and I've never worked on anybody who didn't have it
1: do you find that your work helps people to open up to that realization for themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, that must be the most exciting part for you.
0: It is because it's a kind of redemption. You know, once you get through the static and the noise and the trauma and the tragedy and the heavy stuff, you know, if that was all it was, then it would, it would really not be a fun job, you know, It would just be all heavy stuff all the time. But but there's this redemption that comes at the end when you know when when the energy center becomes balanced and the tone resolves down into that harmony and that beauty. Uh, you know, it very often brings tears to my eyes because this grace emerges. And what's so cool about the tuning forks compared to maybe other forms of body work is that you can hear it. You know, you can hear that tone change. You can hear that crystalline. Clarity and brightness come in, you know. And I can say to people, "Do you hear how beautiful that is? Like, that's your heart that sounds like that. That's who you really are. You're not the static. You're not the self-limiting beliefs. You're not, you know, the depression you inherited from your mother. You're this beautiful, clear, harmonious tone. That's the nature. That's your nature."
1: It's beautiful. Uh, could you tell the listeners again? I know I mentioned it at the beginning, but can you give out your best contact information? So the listeners can access you easily.
0: Sure. The best way to find me is my website, which is my name.com. Eileen McKusick, E I L E E N M C K U S I C K.com. And I have a newsletter that you can sign up for. So we don't have the portal set up yet to sign up for the group distance work, but that will be there probably in the end of May or beginning of June. And then the group work is going to start in July. So if anybody's interested in signing up for that, um, if you sign up for my newsletter, then you'll know uh, when it's ready.
1: Great. Um, So is there anything, any final words you'd like to say, just so that you're like completely complete for yourself here?
0: (laughs) Well, I'd like to just thank you, David, for what you're doing. I think, you know, you're also intrepid and curious and, I think what you're putting together here is, is wonderful. So I'm grateful for the work that you're doing in the world and, you know, your curiosity and, uh, and in exploring nature.
1: Thank you so much. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of freeing the body, freeing the soul, where we do in-depth interviews with people that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing and spirituality and social transformation I'm Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and today we've been speaking with Eileen McCusick, who is doing definitely cutting edge work in the application of sound for healing and spiritual growth. And so, again, thank you, Eileen. Thank you, listeners. It's just not possible to do this without you. And uh, until next time, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Dr. David here again. I hope you enjoyed that interview between myself and Eileen McCusick exploring the healing power of sound. I found it really fascinating, and I'm sure we're just at the beginning of the rediscovery and the extension of a science and an art that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. After the interview was over, I realized that one area I'd like to discuss with Eileen further if we get a chance with a second interview, is more detail about how to manage and guide the process that gets triggered through the special exposure to these specific sound frequencies. I'm sure it generates quite a powerful process and uh, without some guidance and direction, I'm sure it can be a little unsettling. So I'm looking forward to maybe a part two of this interview with Eileen McCusick. So as always, I really appreciate you and I appreciate your interest in the program and your willingness to grow and live an authentic life. So until next time, this is Dr. David and we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now.
0: for joining us for today's episode of freeing the body freeing the soul
1: to access all episodes including show notes go to cuttingedgedoc.com that's cuttingedgedoc.com